Hello and welcome to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Anthony Magnabosco, founder and the current executive director of the non-profit Street Epistemology International, an educational organisation that is committed to addressing dysfunction in public and private discourse by encouraging rationality through civil conversations. Anthony has been involved with street epistemology since 2013. That's over a decade, buddy. And has given dozens of talks and workshops at conferences and events domestically and internationally. Many of his conversations have been uploaded to YouTube. How many, Anthony? Hundreds? Probably probably a few hundred around my YouTube channel. Yep. Yeah. And they demonstrate how street epistemology can be applied to a variety of claims, including ones that are spiritual, political, or societal. So go and check out all those. You could spend, I don't know, a long time just watching all of those videos. So hello, Anthony. Uh, let's begin by saying, where are you right now? And what's it like there? Yeah. Hey, Donald. I'm in San Antonio, Texas at the moment. And uh, the weather's been beautiful. It's been nice and cool, a little overcast, much different than the typical sunny, hot, blazing hot, 100 degree temperatures that we normally get most of the year, it seems. So it's going I, good. I'm currently looking at snow out of my window in Are you really? in Montreal. Yeah, it's kind of melting though, but there's still lots of uh. like, um Well, let's start off with a simple so, so let's assume that our listeners don't really know much about street epistemology. Um, we may as well begin with a, a kind of definition. What is street epistemology? Street epistemology is sort of the antithesis to debating or ridiculing. It's a way mm. of using questions, much like you might see in a Socratic dialogue. But yeah. uh, we're interested in helping people reflect on, uh, critically reflect, by the way, not just re- general reflection, but like seriously, serious contemplation on the quality of the reasons that they're using to arrive at their conclusions. And we typically do it through a conversation, much like you might see in a Socratic dialogue where there's two people talking or maybe one person asking questions to two people or sometimes even a group of people. But it's generally about taking yourself out of it and asking questions to understand how your conversation partner reasoned to their conclusions and and, um, evaluating with them how they determined that they used a reliable process to be sure that something is true. That's generally what street epistemology is. That's what it is right there. I would classify it as a form of dialectic. Now, I'll qualify that by saying that word has multiple meanings, right? So it's kind of associated with Marx and Hegel and stuff these days. But originally in Greek, dialectic was a form of conversation which was contrasted with rhetorical debate. So in rhetorical debate, the goal is to win the argument. Like, and rhetorical techniques involve a lot of what you could call cheating, like attacking someone's character or evoking their emotions or being selective with information and stuff like that. Try and, mm. like, the kind of techniques that you would use to win an argument in political theater. In the leading and loaded way. questions, would yeah, you throw that in there? T- all that kind of stuff, leading questions. Mm. And dialectic is supposed to be the opposite of that. Dialectic is more about rational debate, or we could just say it's kind of philosophical debate as opposed to rhetorical debate. So I would see epistemology as kind of falling into that broad category. Would you um, would you say that's like a, a reasonable way to describe it? I would. I would. The last thing that we 
want to do, I think, when we're doing street epistemology is misrepresenting our conversation partner or setting them up or trapping them with questions to make them look bad. We want to understand our conversation partner's reasoning as clearly yeah. as possible. And like injecting tricks and traps yeah. um, only raises defenses and it makes people more guarded and it misrepresents them and you're not going to get an accurate view of how they're thinking about things. So it's it would be detrimental to to do it in a kind of a sneaky, snide way, I would say. So I'm going to kind of riff on that a little bit for a second because I would just like to kind of chat uh, quite informally with, with my, my guests on the show. Although we've got a bunch of topics we're going to cover. That's my preference, actually. Let's just, just chat. Like, but I, you know, what it kind of makes me think of is I, you know, sometimes on social media, people are, let, let's, let's see a debate about this, right? And there are people who are famous for conducting debates on, on YouTube. Um, but often the debates they have are more like what I would call a traditional rhetorical debate. And the goal seems to be more about winning in the eyes of the audience. When people, like say Christopher Hitchens, for example, or um, these kind of guys, or certain podcasters and so on, when people say that they're having a debate on YouTube, what's the difference, do you think, between the kind of debates that we typically see and what actually goes on in, in street epistemology? In a debate, usually the person is arguing for their position to win over the audience and convince them that their conversation partner that they're speaking with is wrong. Right. And when we're doing SE, we're assuming that our conversation partner has reasoned through their conclusions and they're right, at least mm -hmm. temporarily. Even if they bring up something completely bonkers, like I might think it's bonkers, I still want to be like, okay, they, they think it's true to some degree of confidence. Let's explore their reasoning. So it's sort of giving people the benefit of the doubt and giving them enough space to express themselves. You don't tend mm -hmm. to see that in a debate. Usually we cut people off. We tend to interject yeah. things to throw people, you know, throw people off. And and so that's not at all what's going on. Yeah, um, I, I think it's a strange phenomenon. It's not a modern phenomenon. It's always been the case that at a deeper level, I think it's odd that people think that questions could be settled by that sort of debate when really the, a lot of what's going on is the opposite of looking for the truth. It's more about concealing the truth and misdirecting attention and things like that. It's the sort of thing that lawyers do in courts or politicians do in assemblies, but the methods that are used, which are thousands of years old, are not really designed to communicate and get at the truth. The people wanted recently to have a debate on social media, uh, oh, with uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and uh, an epidemiologist, I think, mm -hmm. and uh, many. The, I thought it was fascinating the the, the debate that the, like the argument that kind of. Um, that people wanted to have, there were most of the people that I knew who were scientists or clinicians thought this is a kind of dumb idea. And a lot of people on social media thought, well, you guys are just scared to have a debate. But I think the difference in perspective is that most scientists would think it seems like a really weird idea to think that you can settle scientific truth by kind of lawyering something, you know, and having two people arguing on a video about it. Because... Mm -hmm. The techniques that are used are not really techniques that we would normally think are good ways of arriving at truth. They're about impressing the audience, confusing the other person. You know, it's more like a game rather than a, a philosophical or a scientific method. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember when that was sort of in the mainstream, or at least on Twitter, people were talking about how a certain physician should show up on a on a very popular podcast to talk about talk with RFK about his position on vaccines. And I actually messaged that physician and said, "Please do it." And I've got some tools for you because I think it, I, I get your point. Yes, you don't want to be t- discussing settled science in a, in a in a situation where. People might be employing techniques, or you have observers, or there's and, the, and then there's a massive audience, right? Who's who you might be catering to, and maybe even biased in favor of or against. Um, but I, I was of the position that I think that these, I think it's possible to teach physicians how to engage with people about those subjects in those platforms, on those platforms, in a way that does expose problems with the other person's reasoning. See, I, I well, that's interesting, right? Because I. I think I disagree with you, but I don't really have a settled opinion on this. When it comes to discussing scientific clinical research, right? I have a background in evidence-based clinical practice, right? So one of the reasons, so I'm very much in favor of it. But I think one of the difficulties here, it's basically the Dunning-Kruger problem that's the kind of essence of the difficulty here. So when you talk about medical research, people think they understand how it works, but if they don't have clinical training or training in research methods, they tend to make the same errors of reasoning over and over again. Now, I think your position would be someone could go in prepared to highlight what those fallacies and errors are and maybe educate the other person. If they, if they, if they happen to come up, sure. Yeah. Which I, which I would imagine they would. Come up. Right. I, I, mean, I would, I, in my opinion, they're almost 100% guarantees to come up. Like, but the, the, so the Joe Rogan show, like, for example, every time he talks pretty much about vaccines and things like that, he makes cause, he commits causal fallacies, confuses correlation and causation over and over again when he talks about research. It feels to me like any clinician in the audience watching it is just kind of tearing their hair out watching this, right? But I think the difficulty is that to educate someone about that, in my opinion, often takes time. And it, it would be hard to, in the middle of a debate on a video or something like that, to yep. visualize the certain things <clears throat> that you go to university and study for years, right, in order to be, understand methodologically about I, science. I, I, to, tra- to, to, to get someone to understand that in the middle of a, a conversation, I think, would be quite mm-hmm. a tall order. It is a tall order, especially when a person could just throw out claim after claim after claim, and you just don't know exactly where to go. but. My advice would be that um, this wouldn't be a debate; that it would be an exploration or a discussion. And I would, I would, I would uh, advocate for some ground rules so that the framing of the interaction would be would be such. I want to ask you questions about how you're reasoning to your conclusions. I'm not going to be throwing up facts to defend my position, and I hope that you don't either necessarily. But um, the the trick is is that it's it's very hard for people who aren't used to doing this type of exploration to stay in that mode and in that mindset. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are in the mindset of I need to get the facts out, I need to show that you're wrong, and I'm going to gloat as I go about doing it. If and you, that's if you, problematic. If you're trying to discuss with someone, though, say a, a mathematical equation, and they don't understand how to do division, and they keep doing it wrong. To kind of educate them about that and explain would require, first of all, it might take time. It might be quite tedious for the audience, and it might be it might require a certain willingness and patience on their part, which I think you're unlikely to see 
in any a, a debate that's at all adver- adversarial. Well, right. here, here, here's another way of looking at it. Yes, may, maybe they don't understand how to arrive at, at their answer, but they have an answer and they use something to get to their conclusion. Now, maybe they didn't understand math in that instance, but somehow they derived a result. I would ask them questions to walk me through their reasoning as to how they derived that result. So it doesn't even matter that maybe the, in this case, the, the, and I love the example too, because it's a very concrete, logical, rigid uh, uh, methodology that you're talking about. But if they're using some other methodology to derive the answer, then I want to explore mm-hmm. how they did that because, well, maybe it's better than math. I don't know. I can't imagine how that could be the case. And I can share my position that I'm skeptical about how they arrived there, but talk me through your reasoning. And in the process of them revealing their reasoning, that's where you start noticing, hmm, I suspect that maybe there's a problem there. Let's tease that out a little bit. And you keep asking questions. I honestly think if you tried to do that with, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would be a perfect example of this. Like if you were to genuinely have the type of discussion that you're describing with him, I think it would end up looking like a, a, a kind of postgraduate lecture in research methods. You'd have to, inevitably no. he'd confuse causation and correlation. Maybe and misunderstand how clinical trials are conducted because that's what he does over and over again. And so you, you you'd have to like really patiently go through a kind of primer, like in what does what you know what the difference between a correlational study and an outcome study is, and why they're different. Well, like, you you, you know, could do that. You could point out what you're suspecting is the problem, and if it's very obvious. It's so tempting to say, well, oh, I see the mistake that you made. You confuse this with that. Well, you could do that, but generally somebody will, pro- if you do that, more than likely uh, they'll come up with an excuse to explain that they're not doing it or that there's a reason why they're doing it. I think it's far more, far better to, to ask, like, if I suspect that they've made a mistake here, I might ask a question that could potentially reveal to them that they may have made this mistake. It's so much more effective if a person arrives at this conclusion on their own by their own reasoning, as opposed to me pointing it out to them and telling them because people's egos are at stake, right? There's I've, an audience watching. I've never seen a conversation where, so actually, and I can think of an example of this. I saw a guest on Joe Rogan once pointed out to him a methodological error that he made in interpreting a research study. And it looked like he kind of understood it. But I think really it went over his head and he just carried on making the same methodological error in the future, right? So I, I've never really seen someone successfully in one of those type of conversations, it, even by using simple examples, get someone to understand the methodological really? errors they were making. Oh, that's so, it's commonplace in SE circles. Now, now, But, you're, there, but those are diff- that's a different setting, right? And people are going into it with different yes, expectations. There's... Like, you know, what I, I really wonder if I, I I really wonder, for example, with a politician like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., is there genuinely the willingness to acknowledge what you said about ego being at stake, right? Would he have to admit that he'd made he's made a grave error, a schoolboy error, repeatedly throughout his career? I understand but that. Ultimately, the- I don't think yeah. he would accept it. He would probably the- just change the subject or I know the the venue is so important. Because people's reputations are at stake. If I were to have a one-on-one conversation with Robert F. Kennedy that wasn't even being recorded per se, where he would be worried about it getting out, it would probably be much more effective 
and and revealing to him than if it was on the Joe Rogan show where I was sitting down and asking him questions in front of Joe and millions of other people. Uh, so this this actually highlights the psychological components that are happening when we when we do these explorations in street epistemology and we try to account for them. We try to recognize the importance of the venue or or what might be at stake with with regards to a person's reputation or their funding because the, right he's he's raising money to to run for president. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a lot at stake. There's there's a huge disincentive to hunker yeah, down. Colossal disincentive. Colossal. I, I mean, I guess uh, let's back up a little bit. How <laughs> we, we kind of got into this over <laughs> there, but uh, I wanted to ask you, having said a bit about what street epistemology is, how did you even get to where you are now? Like, why did you become interested in doing this? My 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 introduction to street epistemology resulted in it was a result of me getting frustrated with arguing with people about religion. Uh huh. Because I. I I lived through 9-11, right? I saw like firsthand how beliefs can cause people to do ridiculous things and dangerous mm-hmm. things. And I was desperate to reach people who were religious to like challenge them on their views. But mm-hmm. I was using all the wrong approaches. I was arguing, I was debating, I was giving facts, mm-hmm. I was ridiculing. And then I read Bogosian's book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, which introduced the, the, the little nugget of idea like, hey, uh, ask questions and get down to the epistemology and you can probably help people reconsider how they arrived at their conclusions and maybe back off of their dogmatic certainty. And that was incredibly appealing to me because I was losing family and friends because of the way that I was engaging yeah. with them. Well, I knew there was a reason I wanted to ask you that question. And it's because you mentioned Peter Bogosian. Um, who's kind of one of the the pioneers of this approach? Like his his method is inspired by the Socratic dialogues. Is that correct? Well, the method of street epistemology was absolutely inspired by the Socratic dialogues, and I think he says just as much in his first book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, which came out mm-hmm. in twenty thirteen. I read it. Now he's been he wrote a second book in twenty nineteen, which I think is an advancement of kind of explain what what's been happening in the SE community and now today uh he's actually been doing uh some some <laughs> engagements with the public let's put it that way mm-hmm. and calling it street epistemology but uh it's interesting like uh yeah i think we should definitely uh, where do where, where do you want to go with that well okay let's start off with so we want to talk about P- peter bogosian but i want to talk about socrates as well so let's start at the beginning right like, like, for instance, I'm going to ask you kind of like a sort of glib question, but only really to to open up the discussion. Why is it called street epistemology, and why is why isn't it just called the Socratic method? Then, what's the difference between the two things? Um, well, that's a good question. I I think street. Ep- well, I had some exposure to the Socratic method just recently on your own uh, Facebook channel. Was it the Plato's Academy one? And Plato's Academy group, yeah. Yeah. So you invited me to to do some Socratic dialoguing. And the, one of the things that I noticed about it is that it seemed like it was very, very focused on the meaning of words and more abstract concepts and less about applying it in the real world. Now, we were actually chatting before this interview briefly where you're saying, well, no, Socrates was interested in getting down to the, the applied part of it. But um, that's a distinction that I've I've seen. It seems to me like, and especially having participated in that experiment on your channel, um, that SE is really interested in the beliefs people hold 
and they think that they're true to a very high degree of confidence and then they yeah. act out in the world because of them. And street epistemology, I, I think, maybe more takes into consideration the psychological aspects of, of the human cognition and accounts for them when it is actually engaging with somebody to really get down to the foundation of, of how they've reasoned to their conclusions. Well, I would say that the, what we did on Facebook was kind of an experiment. I just wanted to play around with something we haven't done before. And it was different from the Socratic method as it's traditionally employed. So I oh, made really? a self-conscious decision to pick, to prescribe an abstract concept that I was going to discuss, which Socrates uh, doesn't normally do, right? Because mm. I thought it would be easier to organize it in the group with a bunch of people involved if we did that. However, the way mm. that the Socratic method is normally employed by Socrates is incredibly, um, how would you say, it's incredibly informal in, in a sense that he normally gets into a conversation with people that he bumps into in the street or a dinner party or at a sports ground is typically what happens. And they'll be chatting about something or other. And Socrates will somehow pinpoint a concept that they are taking for granted. So I'll give you the cliched example. I'll make it easy for myself and give you the most famous example. He bumps into several generals in one of Plato's dialogues called the Lackeys, and they are having a debate about whether they should spend money on hiring a tutor to train their sons in a particular method of fighting in heavy armor. And they ask Socrates' opinion because Socrates was a heavy infantryman who was a hoplite. And Socrates identifies that he says that basically I think what you're really talking about here is the concept of courage in fact is what's kind of taken for granted in the conversation and mm. they agree they agree with it. it's not entirely clear in the english actually how he gets to that but he they, they seem happy to agree that that's really what their conversation revolves around and so he says to try and get usually socrates will question a definition that he thinks is fundamental to uh, a conversation that people are already having that's that's relevant to them, right, and is of immediate importance. So he doesn't come along and say, hey, I'm going to give you a lecture on this or that. You know, he talks to people who are arguing about a court case or about some decision that they have to make in their household. Like, and he shifts their attention onto the assumptions that they're making. So usually it's framed in terms of the con defining the concept that they're taking for granted. But in mm. a sense, all these concepts consist of a cluster of beliefs, right? You could also view it as being about certain assumptions or beliefs that they're holding. Um, so he asks, I think it's uh, Nicias, uh, how he would define courage. And Nicias says it's about being able to stand your ground in the face of the enemy. Um, so that's a definition, but you could also okay. view it as a kind of belief. It's an application of the, the concept to a real-world situation. It's very relevant to him because he's a general and he trains, trains hoplites to fight in phalanx formation, where it's absolutely crucial that they hold formation. And Socrates, what he's very good at is a kind of creative thinking that consists and identifying exceptions. So I, I, when I teach, if I was teaching it to kids, I would say Socrates is really good at going yes, but, right? He always come, he's always really good at coming up with exceptions. So Socrates says, yeah, but what about uh, cavalry? And Nicias says, what, what do you mean? 
Socrates says, cavalry don't hold their ground in formation. They charge at the enemy. Um, so your definition doesn't really make sense. Would you not say that cavalry exhibit bravery as well? And Nicias says, yeah, I would. So Socrates has highlighted a kind of contradiction. So Nicias wants to say that uh, courage means standing firm and holding your ground in the face of the enemy. But he also wants to say that cavalry who charge into the enemy are courageous. Mm. And so Socrates draws his attention to the fact that there seems to be a contradiction there. And that causes him then to revise his definition and to offer an alternative de- definition that's a bit broader. And so okay. Okay. That's, 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 hel- a, that, that's a little kind of mini that's dialogue. Helpful. Right. That's helpful. That's helpful. Uh, yes. Concepts and definitions are really important when we're doing SE. Like, I want to know what you mean when you say vaccines are harmful. I want to know what you mean by vaccines. I want to know what you mean by harmful. Mm-hmm. Or if you say like, I think it's courageous for people to volunteer for the service because uh, whatever. Um, there's different. There's topics that that are that are interesting to explore. But in SE, we don't generally explore broad topics. We generally isolate a specific claim that our pers- uh, a person is making because they they have an opinion on this topic at hand. So we tend to get a little bit more granular, a little bit more specific, a little bit more tangible. You know, let's narrow. In fact, we'll work with our conversation partner to narrow down the claim to something specific, something short and sweet that they think is true that we can explore. And if they throw in a word that needs to be unpacked, we'll definitely unpack it with them. But I'm not going to debate with them about the meaning of the word. I'm not going to explore it and say, yes, but... We don't tend to do that. What if they're uh, using what if they're using the word incorrectly, although or in a contradictory way? Wouldn't that undermine the validity? Not necessarily. Their reasoning? Not well, maybe. So t- typically, when somebody gives a definition of a word, even if I disagree with how they're using it, we'll tend to keep going on with the conversation with them under their model of reality because that's how they see this word, that's how they see these concepts, that's how they're making this claim. So Socrates we'll go- claims that he's doing that as well. He One of his kind of slogans is he says, it doesn't matter whether I agree with you or not. He goes, what I'm trying to talk, draw your attention to is that you disagree with yourself. So the Socratic method is, is really all about <laughs> highlighting contradictions. He'll say he's he's very adept and all of the dialogues really revolve around him pointing okay. out to people that they've contradicted themselves, so in, usually in ways that they haven't noticed. Right. Okay. So we don't generally point out contradictions. What tends to happen is the person, when you're working within their model, within their definition of words, within their reasons, within their epistemology, which is, as we see it, how you determine that you have good reasoning. When we work within their model, that's usually when they realize, oh, um, I'm this confident that this is true. However, now I've got this competing thing over here. Mm-hmm. It, that might be what you're calling a contradiction, yeah. perhaps, but we we sort of talk about there's two competing points, uh, two competing um, statements about reality that the person is now entertaining, which by the way, is kind of cognitive dissonance, Yeah, which is I psychological. Yeah. So we, we, uh, we give our conversation partner space to entertain both of those and then let them decide which of the two they're going to go with. Yeah. So they may, they may adhere to their initial reasoning or they may say, Hmm, maybe, Maybe I need to reconsider this other thing. And that's the kind of critical reflection that we're aiming for. We want our conversation partner to evaluate those things to their standard. 
I think probably what would help at this point for the listeners is if we just give them a very simple example of the kind of thing. So actually you mentioned, because you mentioned already religion, which is yeah. something that I haven't spent as much, maybe a cultural difference. I think in the, my impression is in America, there's, there's, you have more evangelical Christians. and Just a little bit. There's more debate about religion, I feel. In it's, America, yeah, it's a popular conversation. Be in Scotland, right? Yeah, yeah. So, or Canada even. So if you were talking to someone, or when you have spoken to people about religion in the past, what sort of beliefs or statements would his SE typically focused on? I mean, the big one is, do you think a God is real or not? Right. Another one might be like, how did you determine that your holy book is true? Another one might be, when you say that you take it on faith that this is the case, what exactly do you mean by the word faith? And stand back, because you're going to get 500 different definitions of that word. But we go with the, the 363rd definition, because they're using it, mm-hmm. that they're that they this is how they see this word faith. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of religious, and there's different, I mean, I run into a lot of atheists too, who say that I, I'm sure that there's no God. We can still explore mm-hmm. the claim regardless of where you happen to be on on the position? I think all of those questions would, would fall in the remit of what you'd find in Socratic dialogues, and particularly the last one that you Probably. mentioned. If you say, how would you define faith? Um, at the ancient Greece didn't really have the concept of faith like we do today. So Judeo, it's a kind of Christian concept. But they definitely, they would say, how would you define piety? Like That's, that's one of the most common questions in the Socratic dialogues. And then he would go with the definition that the other person would offer, but he may highlight, draw their attention to conflicting statements that they have. Or pretty similar to what we would do. To, yeah. That's pretty similar to what we would do. Like if somebody says, well, I, I take it on faith that Jesus is real. And, mm-hmm. and we may say, okay, well, how are you defining the word faith? And they may say trust or hope or I believe it really strongly or something along those lines. You're going to get all sorts of definitions. And we'll accept it. And, and we might say, uh, this uh, an outsider test for faith, John Loftus. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, it's such a great no. technique. But if somebody else were to come by and say that they believed a yeah. completely different God was real and they took it on faith or trust or hope that this was the case, what would you think about their reasoning? And that's usually when they say, well, well, they would be wrong because my God's real. They're, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And then we might explore, okay, well, how... I would call that an example of what in CBT we refer to as the double standard strategy, hmm. which consists in highlighting to somebody that they're employing a double standard in terms of a concept that they're using. So I think it's valid if I use faith to justify beliefs in this way, but I don't think it would be valid if somebody else. Right. Did. So we say it's a contradiction, it's a double standard. You, and Socrates do- actually does. <clears throat> something very similar to that quite frequently Hmm. in the Platonic dialogues and Xenophon's dialogues as well. It's not a given though that they will, um, they will say, well, I'm right and they're wrong. They, it's very, it's not entirely impossible or uncommon for somebody to say, well, they're using faith to believe Allah is real or Vishnu is real. And I use faith to believe Jesus is real and we're all right. We're all correct. Mm-hmm. They'll go. They'll go uh, relativistic in their reasoning, yeah. and they think truth is subjective. At which point, we tend to put the claim about God being real on the back burner. We explore what they mean. What does the word "true" mean to you? Which might also be something that might be explored. Antony, in, in this. the Theaetetus of Plato is famously 
exactly about that question because the guy that he imagines talking to is a, a follower of um, a famous sophist called Protagoras. And the sophists were, in, at least in Plato's telling, um, he's portrayed as a relativist who says what appears true to you is true for you. And Socrates actually leads him in a very convoluted conversation that causes him to end up in contradiction by you. Mm. So Socrates will say question, ask him questions like, so again, applying that standard of that assumption, Socrates, for instance, among many other things, will say, um, so if somebody believes this, if it appears to me that the room is warm, then it's true for me that the room is warm. Is that correct? And his partner says, yeah, that's the kind of thing I mean. And the Socrates says, what if it appears to me that it's going to rain tomorrow? Does that mean that it's true for me that it mm. is going to rain tomorrow? And they struggle more with that. They're like, okay, that's that a bit more of a tricky example. I'm not sure like, if I would agree with that or not. Um, and then he leads them a very convoluted path where I think, if I remember rightly, he asks them, if I believe that truth is absolute and it's not relative, does that mean then that it's true for me that truth is not relative? Like, and then how do we make sense out of that? Because it seems mm-hmm. to conflict with your belief in relativism. Um, so it gets it gets pretty thorny, but that yeah. it addresses exactly the assumption that you're talking about. And, you, and actually, just at a, I guess like a day-to-day level, dealing with relativism, I guess that's a, almost like a meta problem, right? So you're getting people to evaluate certain beliefs like does God exist or not? But then also, I guess their relativism might be more of a methodological issue in their thinking that could come up across a lot of different debates. Exactly. Exactly. That's what what I love so much about SE because, yes, you can use it to to isolate a specific claim and get into the reasoning. But what tends to happen is you hit these these major cognitive roadblocks, Mm -hmm. whether it's psychological or it's it's philosophical or science-based or whatever, logical fallacies, whatever, you hit these things that are that are problematic, not just for the claim that was originally surfaced, but for a variety of other claims and and positions that the person holds and act out and acts out on. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love getting down to that that lower level of foundation of reasoning so that you can explore these major concepts that have implications for the things higher up. Yeah, yeah. It, it potentially gets more philosophical in a sense. So you're there maybe like Socrates is known for sometimes going back and forth between talking in quite abstract ways, but then also talking about real world examples like will we pay this guy to train our sons in mm. how to fight in armor? Or what is the nature of truth? Is it absolute or relative? Like he he finds himself going between these things. And I think that's inevitable when you're I think I you have to. Yeah. Yeah, I because think you have to. There might be abstract or methodological issues that impinge on the whole conversation, like someone's belief in the nature, very nature of faith, might be something they take for granted, like or the belief in relativism might be something they take for granted. Oh, but that also goes back to what we were saying about Joe Rogan and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That, it, in a sense, methodological assumptions about how science works might be coloring their entire conversation, and they might they might be they might actually be arguably wrong in the eyes of the entire scientific community, or maybe even, you know, could be contradictory in some ways. 
Yeah, I think uh, sometimes it, it it comes down to that. There's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how science works, for example. They think, um, well, if enough scientists believe it, then it makes it the case or uh, th that type of there's, – there's a fundamental misunderstanding about how science works in general, at least in, in this country, and that is a problem. And, and we often stumble across that too when we're exploring um, deeply held beliefs. A, a lot of times we get down to the epistemolog epistemological level. So we've isolated the claim, we have a confidence level, yeah. we've identified a couple of reasons, and now we've isolated a reason that contributes to their confidence. And then we, mm -hmm. um, at the epistemological level, we might want to explore, well, how could we test this? Or how did you test it? How did you test mm -hmm. your reasoning to determine that you can put so much confidence in your conclusion? And it's the exploration of testing that tends to reveal right. faults in how people, a lot of people, I've had many, many conversations with people who think that a test shows that something's right or correct all the time. They don't mm -hmm. even consider that a test should also be capable of showing when something's incorrect. So there's these fundamental misunderstandings, but that gets all teased out. We look for this stuff and we explore this with our conversation partner with questions. Now, we were actually talking a little bit earlier about one of the things that emerges. So the, the, the Socratic dialogue, there are many, many of them. And they range over many, many different subjects and they take many different forms. And sometimes you see people pushing back against Socrates and kind of like, you know, uh, refusing to acknowledge valid points he's making. Sometimes you see Socrates backing down on certain things. But for instance, one of the things that comes up repeatedly is that Socrates will encourage people to explore how they know certain facts. Um, that are maybe outside the sphere of competence in such a way that they arrive at the conclusion that they should probably consult an expert, right? And this is very familiar to me. We'll, come, we'll talk more about this in a moment, in cognitive therapy. So in cognitive therapy, we're, we're often doing similar things. One of the things that emerges when you're working with clients in therapy is that they, what's missing in many cases in their reasoning is a failure to consult appropriate resources or experts in order to answer certain questions. Um, so often people will be assuming things to be the case that, and they'll admit that they don't really know for sure whether it is or not. You know, And what a reasonable person might do under similar circumstances is find somebody like a doctor who has expertise or credibility. Um, and then, but then obviously today that raises a question where many people doubt scientists of, you know, I guess a methodological question of sorts is how do you identify experts whose opinions you can trust that's in modern society? Good, it's a, such a good question. And that's the question that we that I would advise people to ask, because a lot of people think that they've identified the experts mm -hmm. and it tends to be the experts that happen to agree with what you think is the case. Medicine's uh, an I, easy example, but it's not the only example. But we can, yeah, if we take yeah. medicines, you see, you're you're not trained. In, uh, in medicine, you don't have any training in research methods. So how do you find out what the best treatment is for a particular problem? Mm -hmm. Are you going to spend time educating yourself in, in the entire methodology? Or would you just use some sort of criteria to try and figure out an authority that you could trust? That is a phenomenal question that I think humans are going to probably always struggle with from now in, in the past to, to the end of time. Basically, I guess a way of putting it is you can't, be, you can't realistically be an expert on everything, right? You can't. You, you have to eventually take things 
some might even argue on faith. Although I would say uh, there's a difference between uh, testable faith and untestable faith. Mm-hmm. Generally, if you have, it really comes down to how much time are you willing to pursue to verify that you have the true experts' uh, view of the matter. So, uh, can you actually meet with them? Could you see the mm-hmm. the experiments that they were running? Could you study the results? Could you talk with them? Um, now, a lot of people don't have time, and we do shortcuts. Like mm-hmm. they seem credible, they seem confident when they're speaking. Yes, they're pointing out some studies. Oh, I googled it, and the studies are there. I just read the abstract, maybe, and that's good enough for me. That's probably as yeah. far as most people go to decide whether they're going to take an expert's opinion. Seeming confident is an interesting criterion. Oh, because we have know, an overconfidence issue in this country. You know, I mean, someone world. seems someone seems very unsure and nervous. It could, in many situations, be a sign that you might not be able to take their opinion uh, on value. But also, if someone's a con man or a charlatan, right, or you know, like suffers from is narcissistic, like they're going to seem incredibly confident. They're going to seem probably more confident than a genuine expert. And I, I think I it, it probably is one of the ways in which people, in real, in practice, in daily life, are. are are very frequently misled. People are easily duped by someone seeming more confident than an expert. When and popularity too. Uh, yeah. they, have, they, they have a million followers, so they must know what they're talking about. They must know what they're talking about. Also, the other weird criteria that people use are this guy charges so much money for his advice <laughs> that right. he must know what he's talking about. Yeah, which is a crazy. Uh, yeah, we have we have these weird markers, but we don't uh, give a lot of thought to the to the quality of those markers, and that's the beauty of of a, it. If you could find somebody who's willing to ask you a couple of questions about your position, and you're open to allowing them to do that, you're going to start noticing cracks in your reasoning, and yeah. and that backs us off of our certainty. But you're right; we've got these gurus out there who are just generating all this propaganda and nonsense yeah. for clicks and popularity and money. Yeah, and it's despicable, and they're doing it at the expense of our culture. Yeah, on a doing huge it at the, scale, on a huge scale. At and when we're talking about, we have nuclear weapons now, and 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 I mean, things are dire. We have to address this. This is the biggest challenge that we're facing: is how do we, how do we reach the people who have been duped, and how do we become less duped ourselves? Yeah, that I mean, in in spirit, this is absolutely what Socrates is concerned with, right? The sophists were the people doing the duping. I mean, it's a combination of sophists who are comp- professional teachers in rhetoric, or spin doctors, or whatever you want to kind of call them. They're often political advisors in the ancient world. Um, but weirdly, what developed is a weird hybrid of political rhetoric and self improvement advice, which strangely we have again today, like. But it was political orators and these guys that worked with them that Socrates thought were a big threat to society because they were all about winning arguments and manipulating audiences. They were experts at it. They were were highly trained in it. Uh, It was a very sophisticated discipline. And they were extremely wealthy. They were uh, extremely successful. There was a lot of money and power at stake in learning how to manipulate audiences. But um, there's another question that I wanted to to ask you. Um, I guess another theme I wanted to introduce. We've talked about the relationship between street epistemology and Socrates and philosophy. And I mentioned earlier cognitive therapy. So cognitive Mm. therapy is kind of loosely inspired by the Socratic method. 
but it really it morphs into a technique we call Socratic questioning, which is central to cognitive therapy, but it takes on a very different form. You also get Socratic questioning in law and in medicine and other branches of education, but again, it's it's mutated into something that's very different from what Socrates was actually doing. However, Socratic questioning cognitive therapy maybe has some other similarities with uh, what you guys are doing in street epistemology. And I thought a good way of, maybe that you're not as familiar with some of the the strategies and techniques that are used in in CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. So I wanted to start off with a more general question, which is, in addition to being a kind of broadly philosophical methodology, do you think that street epistemology has a therapeutic dimension does it have a kind of therapeutic potential in some cases i think it might not only for the person that you're asking the questions to but for the practitioner themselves Mm -hmm. because i've i've noticed when i've adopted these tools i become a lot more calm and less triggered and more introspective and and um forgiving of other people's positions so that's that's definitely helped but I think even beyond the receiving end, it's helpful to be to 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 examine your reasoning, mm-hmm. despite the, despite the impact that it might have on your social uh, position or your place in a tribe. Um, there's definitely a psychological component to SE. One of, one of the the biggest framings I think that we do in SE that might kind of uh, cross with CBT. It's very common for us to ask our conversation partner once the claim has been identified is to ask them, well, what's your feeling of confidence that this is actually true mm-hmm. on a scale from one to 10 or, or a Likert scale from one yeah. to seven or zero to 100. And we like to assess their personal feeling of that. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, maybe to even go a little bit further, we'll, we'll ask questions that pose risks to that feeling of confidence. Yeah. I might actually be less confident in my position at the end of it, or I might be more confident or le- or just the same. And we, we tend to, I think in SE world, we tend to value truth more than the pragmatic value of a belief. So we might ask a question that could exhaust the belief that you have that is fulfilling a psychological need. Now, we're very careful about how we do it. And, and that might be actually a difference between CBT. I, I'm 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 envisioning a therapist who might offer a solution to their patient because the patient has revealed that this is what they need to get through their day. But in SE world, we might say, well, you know, what might be the next best way to deal with this issue or get through the day if this wasn't true? Mm-hmm. I think there's more of an adherence to truth. Mm-hmm. Maybe in it really comes down to the SE practitioner, I guess. But it's possible to 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 knock down pillars of psychological support when you're yeah. doing an SE talk. I mean, first of all, the thing that you're saying about using scales is bread and butter of cognitive therapy. And these kind of scales are used in lots of different ways. Um, but yeah, we find that an extremely useful technique. I mean, you can Very. say to people from zero to 10, how strongly do you believe that this statement is true? And then if they say nine out of 10, you can say, so how come it's not 10 out of 10 then? Right. Like, right. Or you can right. say, how come it's not zero out of 10? What would it take um, to move you to a 10? Yeah. What would it take to move you down to a two? You, you might say, uh, other preparer questions you can use are at a gut level, at an emotional level, how true does this feel to you? And then you could say, if you're thinking about it really objectively and rationally, 
how true do you believe that it actually is in reality? And people will very often give two different answers to those questions. Mm. And then you can say in therapy, how come you feel 90% that this is true, but when you judge it objectively, you say it's only 10% true? Right, right. You're highlighting this conflict between the, the felt truth of something and the kind of objective truth of it. And you might also say sometimes, you know, from zero to 100%, how strongly do you think other people I believe this statement or, you know, people that you admire or look up to or experts, for example, would endorse this statement. Why do you think that's different from the level of confidence mm-hmm. that you have in it, for instance? So you can actually use scales in lots of clever ways. I, I'd want to back up and just mention something because I think it might be helpful to you. I think there's a lot of potential to do psychological research on street epistemology and similar methods. And there are many things that you could look at. But probably the most general thing would be there's a kind of trait that we call psychological or cognitive flexibility in in psychological research. And we know that it's a major contributor to, to mental health and emotional resilience. And what you're describing, the kind of ability to view things from different perspectives, to question your own thinking, are all really indicative of greater psychological flexibility. So the opposite would be kind of tunnel vision, fusion, rigidity, where people become really locked into a particular set of assumptions. So rigid thinking, like monolithic thinking, tends to be associated with certain mental health problems. That's interesting. So the words that you're bringing up remind me of what we would call open-mindedness or yeah. curiosity and or dogmatic certainty on the other extreme. Yeah. We look for those things. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's why I think that there is, that's that psychological component that we, that we, uh, that we try, try to look for and account for and, and, and surface with them. I'm going to try and bring up something now that I came, I came to my mind from everything we've discussed so far. And maybe this is a bit of a deep dive question. So I don't know, we might not be able to do it justice, but maybe we can just touch on it anyway. One of the things that we actually do in cognitive therapy is we do tend to work Socratically, as we call it with clients. So the the approach that's called, Socrates calls midwifery. So it's not the job normally of the therapist to tell the client what to do or what to believe. Usually it's preferred that we encourage the client to figure out things for themselves by tactical questioning, right? However, there's a kind of delicate balancing act that we have to do that comes back to this issue of expertise. So an evidence-based clinician has spent years training in and keeps up to date and theoretically on all of the psychological research that's available. The client does not know what that research says when they come into therapy. So the client, even though we're working Socratically, we have to deal with the fact that the client lacks information and maybe doesn't have the training required to even interpret some of the studies that the therapist is familiar with. So the therapist knows a lot of things about how depression works that the client is unaware of, Hmm. like just facts that they don't know. Um, And so what we usually do is, first of all, we're going to have to simplify that. We're going to have to make it relevant to the client and understandable to them. But usually we try and educate them in these things in a kind of client-centered or student-centered Socratic way through the use of what we call socialization experiments in therapy, which are basically little techniques that we use to try and show the client 
that something is the case rather than just telling them that it's the case. So for instance, there's a ton of research um, that shows that social anxiety tends to be associated with heightened self-focused attention, right? Hmm. And many people are, clients are usually oblivious to that. They don't really understand the implications of it. The therapist knows this because all the research studies tell us that very clearly. Now, rather than sitting the client down and giving them a lecture on what the research says, the therapist might say to the client, tell me what you, where you went on holiday last time and just get the client, just, you know, like, tell me all about it. Like, have a, let's just have a normal conversation about it. And then the therapist might say, could you do that again? But this time I want you to, through the whole process, think about what your face looks like and pay attention to your breathing as you're talking. And then the therapist might say, how does that affect how you feel? And the client might say, well, it's kind of distracting and it's making me really self-conscious. And I'm, I'm finding that I'm pausing more and kind of tripping over my words. So my conversation doesn't seem as natural because my attention's divided, right? Nice. And so the therapist might, through getting the client to do these little behavioral experiments, it help them figure out for themselves that self-focused attention might be contributing to their social awkwardness and social anxiety in ways mm-hmm. that they hadn't realized before, right? But it's a big challenge for therapists to figure out how on earth do we take this technical knowledge and make it understandable to the clients? There are forms of therapy that don't try to do that, like what we call client-centered counseling, where we just encourage the client to figure out their own answers. But most therapists think clients lack knowledge that we have access to that would help yeah. them to solve these problems. There's a, there's a little bit of a parallel there with what we do in SE. And I would say it's probably less about uh, identifying psychological aspects that a, that a therapist might be privy to. In, in, uh, in, when we're doing SE, we're usually a, a little bit more cognizant of what logical fallacies are, for example. Mm-hmm. And rather than giving them a lecture on what the argument from ignorance is or the argument ad populum, um, we might notice that they're tripping over that, that they've made this cognitive mistake. Mm-hmm. And and generally what we might try to do is rather than just directly point it out to them, which could be hard to do and it could result in defensiveness, is yeah. we might propose a thought experiment or a hypothetical situation for them to entertain. Um, and that usually is enough for the light bulb to go off. Me, like That's where they notice, oh, there, there's a problem here in this hypothetical. And then we overlay that discovery with the claim that they've made or the reasoning that they've surfaced. And then again, we leave them alone to sort of piece that out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Now I'm conscious there was another topic that we mentioned earlier, and I wonder if we could, this would be a good opportunity to, to bring it in. So we've talked about the relationship with the Socratic dialogues. We've talked a little bit about similarities and differences with cognitive therapy, but what about variations? of the street epistemology approach. We mentioned Peter Bogosian's um, approach earlier, and I think you told me about things like the hidden claim, the spectrum SE. So do you yep. want to say a little bit about what what, what different versions of SE are out there? There's a lot of different versions. The version that I gravitated towards and, and popularized, maybe to the point where it, it skewed people's perception of this is the one and only way you have to do it, was to like don a camera, go out, in public and flag people down and do it sort of interview style where I'd like to ask you a series of questions to explore your reasoning in a one-way sort of directed way. That's one way that you can do SE. Another way would be more conversational. You're at a dinner party, somebody says something, 
And now you're having a back and forth where you're peppering in some Socratic questions. But as this been this has been blowing up and developing and people are uploading conversations to YouTube and we have diverse people from all around the world gravitating towards this and we're seeing experimentation, which is yeah. really exciting because it's the experimentation and then the sharing of the results that has made SE very, very durable. So we've seen examples of people saying, you know what? Um, I'm sick of being accused of advocating for my position when I explore religion. And I'm going to just ask my conversation partner to to think of a claim that they think is true, but don't tell me. I want you to hide it from me. Mm. And I'm going to still explore. I'm going to ask you questions. And then at mm. the end of the conversation, if you feel like you want to reveal it, that's great. So that's mm -hmm. one variation. Another variation that just kind of started recently, maybe over the last two years it's been developing, is is uh, when, we, when we identify a claim, we tend to ask, ask a person how confident they are that it's true from mm – -hmm from zero to 100 or from I disagree to strongly agree or strongly mm -hmm. disagree to strongly agree of, of an arc type of thing. So we've seen instances where people will go out in public and actually lay down little mats with words on it and ask a person, or in some cases, two or three people to stand on these positions and then ask similar types of questions to identify claims. Uh, you're assessing confidence in the moment and then getting down to reasons and methods. Now, <clears throat> Um, spectrum. That's that. Then that. That's uh, what's been dubbed Spectrum Street epistemology, and I think it has a lot of potential. But what we're seeing, at least at the moment, is that lots of claims are being surfaced with very little diving down to the foundational stuff. Is with which, with which we're tending to aim for with street epistemology, and we want to generate that kind of critical reflection that results in a person reevaluating their position, and. Um, in many of the examples that we tend to see today, we don't quite see it yet with Spectrum SE, but I think it's heading in that direction. And there's no reason why it can't get down to that level, but it's very challenging, especially if you're changing the subject or the, the topic or the claim all the time, or you're interjecting people that they might actually know where the facilitator stands on the issue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you might have um, confederates in the mix as opposed to just two equal participants that Yes, they might disagree on the position, but they're not privy to where the facilitator stands. Mm -hmm. So there's a, you know, I don't want to take, I, I don't want to take a hard stance on these experimental approaches because they're what we need to make SE better and more accessible and understandable. Like it's, it's a great thing. Um, we just, I guess we run the risk of confusing the brand of SE uh -huh. as this dialectical tool for exploring the quality of reasoning. If we see examples that don't quite get to those lower levels. I think it reminds me a little bit of in the therapy field, we have what we call therapist neutrality, you know, because the a well-established problem is that the therapist, even if they're attempting to be uh, client-centered, as we put it, or Socratic in their approach, can influence the, the client by asking unintentionally leading questions, but also in many, many subtle ways. Um, just from what the client knows about you. I used to train therapists and I'd say, you know, if you have a bookshelf in your room, I've seen many therapists with their book collection because they like the client to think that they've read all these books about therapy. But the client will be sitting there looking at the titles of the books, right? And that's going to shape their perception of what they think you want them to say. And so, mm. I mean, really, it, I, I'm one of those therapists who would be extremely cautious about making my environment as neutral as possible, 
you know, it's hard today with social media because now if you make videos and give conversations, clients oh, can sure. see all your stuff online. They'll look you up. Yeah. yeah. And now they now you've kind of polluted the conversation a bit because they know about your politics or they know about your beliefs and things. And that can shape the type of answers that they'll tend to give. But in an ideal world, I mean, back in the day before social media, the therapist was sitting in the room and the client didn't know if the therapist was gay or straight. Like they didn't know if the therapist was left or right wing politically. Mm. Yeah, uh, they, religious or non-religious. Religious or non-religious. And the therapist would keep it that way. Um, so the focus is much more on the client's uh, thinking and the therapist's attitudes and beliefs don't come into it as much. It's hard to do that, though, sometimes. A famous example is some behavioral psychologist studied Carl Rogers, who was one of the, the pioneers of the client-centered approach. And, and Rogers insisted that he was being very completely neutral with clients. And they found that when clients mentioned sex, uh, Rogers used to look uninterested and look away, right? And that act uh, extinguished the, their behavior, um, according to the theory of operant conditioning, the, him doing that is going to make them less likely to talk about those things, you know. And so they found evidence from watching videos of Rogers that he was shaping the speech of the clients just through his eye movements and body language in response to the things that they were saying. Hmm. That reminds me of an example I heard. I don't know if it's true or not, but there was a, a supposedly some college level class where they they all agreed to nod vigorously whenever the professor went to this yeah. side of the room, but kind of shake their head whenever he went to this side of the room. And then by the end of the semester, he was like cordoned off in this one little corner of positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. But I, the, yeah, the, 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 the biases and the goals and, and the messaging that the facilitator wants to convey when they're doing street epistemology is a hotly contested subject. We all have biases. We all have our positions. We all think, you know, we're right and they're wrong and they should come over to our side. And it's so hard to turn that off when you're doing any type of variation of street epistemology to, to not message your own views and to not try to skew the results or make another side look bad. It's one of the biggest challenges facilitators face. See, so facilitators, you, you touched on it earlier, if the facilitator is known for being strongly atheistic or agnostic, or the facilitator is known for being kind of anti-woke or like right-wing or left-wing or pro-woke or left-wing politically, like from the point of view of cognitive therapy, that's really going to have a big impact on the behavior of the, the, the clients or participants, as you call them. What's interesting, though, is generally I've noticed that the the participants don't don't unless they're aware of the facilitator's reputation or they look them up online, like you were saying. They generally don't know where the facilitator stands unless, unless there's loaded or deleted language or they slip and they say something. Um, generally, what happens, it's the viewers of the interaction who know where the facilitator stands. Mm -hmm. They're right. able to pick up on the subtleties, maybe more so than the, than the participants in the moment. But, but, but still, the important thing is, I think, across the board, whether, whether you, you're concerned about your audience or the participants – um, that you really should try to be neutral because ultimately I think this is about trying to get to the truth of the matter. So if you're interjecting your own views, you're going to be skewing the results. You won't get a clear view of your conversation partner's reasonings, and it's just going to be a jumbled mess. I, I don't know what – we've got enough propaganda in the world today. Mm -hmm. 
We got plenty of examples of propaganda and demeaning the other side. That's that's covered. Like let's let's try to do something better. And that's what we're trying to do with SE. One of the problems we have in therapy, I mean, there are different, like you said, there are different variations. We call this clients sometimes. Like, but one extreme version of it is just clients saying what they think the therapist wants to hear, right? And I would say that tends to be a particular type of person that does that. Some people are very submissive in that regard, but they'll agree with the therapist and then they go away and you feel like, but they didn't really agree with it. They were just saying that. Like, you know, they go home and they'll just revert back to, you know, so there yeah. are certain people who say things that are, I guess, very inauthentic. They like, they'll agree with things just for the sake of being compliant. Yeah. Um, well, sure. I'm talking to this established, uh, esteemed doctor, and I, I'm a plumber. So, like, I'm going to defer to their expertise and just nod along, and maybe I'll glean a little bit of things here and there. But yeah, that's. Yeah, I, I actually have a situation in my family with that exact situation where a person was going to therapy. And I got the impression after driving him back and forth to all these sessions that yeah. he probably was of that mindset. And I was trying to like, you know, help him to open up and reveal because how are you going to get the help you need if you don't actually reveal your true position on things? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one more question that I'd like to ask you just to kind of wrap things up today. And that's what do you think the future holds for streets epistemology and maybe I guess implicit in that is there are there any ways that you think it could potentially uh, be developed further? I think the future is very very bright for street epistemology because we we can see the division that's happening in the society today. Everyone understands what the problems are, but nobody's really surfacing good solutions. And I think street epistemology is a solution. We just have to simplify it. We have to make it commonplace, and we have to encourage people to do it when they find themselves in a situation where. Somebody's making a, a claim and you think it's odd and you can, you feel comfortable enough to engage with them. So like, and, and we've come so far over the last 10 years of understanding what it is we're even doing and how to, how to teach it to people in a way that, that sticks with them and it gives them the confidence to do it in the moment. And then, uh, the experimentation that we see is so encouraging. We, there, there are people around the world who are doing variations of this and what I, I think is going to probably happen next is we'll start to see not only offshoots of different variations of SE like Spectrum SE or Hidden Claim SE or just regular SE, vanilla SE as some people have dubbed it, but <clears throat> but more focused, um, situational specific domains. Like I could see a whole offshoot of people who are interested in journalism getting into SE and maybe even customizing it in a way that lends itself better to that discipline yeah. or the medical industry, politicians. And, and I think the, the course that we've been working on, it's called navigating beliefs. If you don't mind the plug, it's called, it's at navigatingbeliefs.com or you can just go to streetepistemology.com. You'll find it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we're building this baseline foundational codified version of SE and we expect offshoots to come from it. Mm. We, we want people from different disciplines to come in and learn the, these tools and, and tweak them and modify them specifically for, for their discipline. So I, th- yeah, I, I'm very encouraged with like, it's, it's kind of a rocky time at, in street epistemology land with, uh-huh. with the variations that are out there and people's perception of it is it about atheism. Is it anti-woke? Like I, I, I'm looking 30 years down the road with this thing. You know, I, uh-huh. I don't get too like it, sometimes it's upsetting because we might lose people from the community or that type of thing. Um, but I think the future is very, very bright. 
Awesome. And I'd, I'd like to see academic philosophers and cognitive therapists, for example, getting into more dialogue. I think there's we're replicating each other's work in some ways, and I think there's a lot potentially of opportunity for interdisciplinary conversation to be had and you know some crossover there. I've had a few psychotherapists reach out to me after yeah. watching SE videos and saying, I'm now incorporating SE into my practice, which yeah. is so baffling to me because it seems like it overlaps so much with what I would expect to be taught in schools, but yeah. apparently it's not. Yeah, totally. I, I could see that. Um, the similarities and differences, and then you know maybe there's ways that you guys do things that could be... Uh, there are also things for cognitive therapy that I think could be done in an SE context as well. Yeah. Here's the other thing that I think is cool about SE is that at the moment, there's no authority. Yeah. We can experiment and do whatever we want, essentially. Like we try to advocate for like, do no harm and be honest and, and ask for informed consent and these types of things Mm -hmm. back off if it seems like it's becoming too problematic. But um, one of the beauties of SE is that I might get an idea from you from this interview today. I could literally go out and flag a few people down and practice it, report back to the a global community, get feedback on it, have other people mimic it and try it. And we've, we've got this amazing community and engine of, of testing and feedback and development and pushing this thing forward, which I don't tend to see in the other disciplines. Yeah. I think there's, maybe it's there. Yeah. There's, there's more potential. Well, look, one of the things I think I'm in many ways, a I've always been a critic of certain aspects of psychotherapy, for instance, right? My own field. And I like I used to train a lot of client, uh, a lot of student therapists and counselors and life coaches. And I'd say to them, you know, that I really fundamentally, you know, when you think about a subject for long enough, you start to get more and more like basic about what you think's gone wrong, you know? Um, I think one of the problems is just that therapists spend too much time in small rooms with one person. There's not enough of them doing group therapy. So there's not enough sunlight on what they're doing. No one, often they're mm. not really getting observed closely enough in terms of their interaction with clients because mm-hmm. the, the problem is with confidentiality. Yeah, um, privacy. Mm-hmm. There has to be privacy, right? But that means there's no sunlight like, on what's going on. I mean, you do have clinical supervision where uh, you know maybe a supervisor would listen to recordings of some of your sessions, but a lot of therapists don't even do that. Right. But I think for sure, like if therapists were doing more group work and if some of it was able to be done more in public, there are certain psychotherapists that have done that in the past, they'd get more feedback. Yes. And I really believe that feedback is a is a good thing. People would say, Why did you do it that way? Wouldn't it be better to do it this way instead? But no one sees what goes on in the consulting room, usually, apart from maybe one supervisor um gets to see bits of it. So, you know, that's not a healthy to me, that's a fundamentally unhealthy arrangement. Totally working. agree. There's a culture, uh, there's an SE culture that I think is geared towards failing forward and sharing your exa- your poor examples and mm-hmm. discussing it. And there's a review show coming up, you know, in a couple of days and they plan it and we do them every once in a while. We'll take a video or, or yeah, usually it's a video and we get three or four people who will critique the facilitator and they don't mm-hmm. hold back, you know, uh, we we can take our ego out of it. Like if you can, that's a big part of SE, but it also helps to, to when it comes to reevaluating what it is you're doing. And, and then that, that is then watched by other people who have, they comment under the video and give feedback. That has been crucial to the, to the progress of SE. And that's never going to stop that, that, Mm -hmm. that cycle of feedback and, and, and improvement is going to keep moving forward. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of its strengths. 
Well, yeah. uh, I think that's been another great discussion. And I'd like to awesome. thank Anthony uh, for joining us. We hope that you, the audience, enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Uh, please share the link with your friends so that they can listen to it as well and subscribe to the Stoicism Philosophy as a Way of Life newsletter on Substack for more podcasts and articles on philosophy and stuff. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And it's goodbye from me, Donald Robertson, and from my guest, Anthony Magnabosco. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye, Donald.